in, in aspects of um, pandemic response. So pandemics occur and um, this is not a new, uh, it's not an unexpected situation. It's certainly, um, I'm sorry, there's all kinds of things on my screen here. Um, pandemics occur. Uh, if we look at the last 20 years, we will see that uh, we are in the middle of, of course, uh, a pandemic. We are doing this virtually because of it. Um, but if we go back about 10 years, 2009, there was another pandemic. Uh, both of these were preceded by something called a public health emergency of international concern uh, that pre, uh, preceded the declaration by about six or eight weeks in each instance. And there was also public health emergencies declared for the West African Ebola outbreak, polio resurgence, Zika uh, movement. If you go back to 2003, uh, of course, there's another SARS, the original SARS co coronavirus. Another coronavirus called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, in 2012 that started. Um, and then, of course, we have anthrax attacks that's uh, disrupted our public functioning here in the United States. But if we go way back uh, 20, 20 years before the anthrax attacks, you uh, will remember that that's when HIV-AIDS pandemic started. That is a big one. It has killed 36 million people globally to date. And uh, I'm going to use that in lessons learned. Um, so th that's what's, that's, you know, the fact that pandemics occur. Uh, we do have formal responses. A lot of them are informal. We're going through that right now through emergency operations centers. But if we look at um, one pandemic response, it's called the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief that, that started in 2003 under the Bush administration. Now remember, HIV started in 1981. This is 2003, so it's about 20 years late. But uh, it hit sub-Saharan Africa very bad. Uh, life expectancies were uh, deeply affected. Uh, this is not saying that it's causal, but PEPFAR uh, was started in 2003, and $90 billion were, um, was uh, put towards that effort. And uh, it's one of the, anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a response that I wanted to bring up. Epidemic and pandemic pre preparations. If we look at that same 20-year uh, lifespan, uh, the international health regulations that were put into place in 2005 really uh, put into place the terminology of public health emergency of international concern. That's called a FEEC for short. Another big uh, uh, preparation is the global health security agenda. And there's just a big CDC grant, $500 million put out uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, it's something that I've been very involved in. It's called the Laboratory Response Network. Uh, that started in 1999, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. But if we get, again, go way back to 1951, 1951, the Epidemic Intelligence Service was started, and that's part of the Public Health Service. Um, of It's a uniform service in the United States government. So those are some of the preparations that have occurred, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Laboratory Response Network. Uh, again, I got to remind you that I left uh, public health formally in 2016 to come to island conservation in the GES. Laboratory Response Network was uh, uh, 
started by the CDC Association of Public Health Laboratories and the FBI to um, have laboratory infrastructure to confirm diseases that would cause uh, instability in society. So we set up high containment laboratories. I was a manager of the Bioterrorism and Emerging Pathogens Unit for a dozen years uh, and then worked in the public health lab for several years before that. We stood up four uh, LRN laboratories, high containment laboratories, you can see on the map there in North Carolina during my tenure. So during my tenure, I took a leave of absence to help out with the West African Ebola outbreak. Uh, I joined Medicine Sans Frontieres with uh, 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 taking a leave of absence. I went to Liberia. I wanted to point out this uh, um, quote that says, uh, every situation MSF intervenes in is really humanly abnormal, bizarre. That's a characteristic of an F MSF mission. It's a crazy situation. The reason I bring that up is because that does um, uh, characterize MSF missions and responses, but we're all living uh, in an emergency right now, so it's kind of applicable to all of us. So the interdisciplinary approach uh, that is uh, the MSF way includes uh, trainings by anthropologists, having them on the teams that are going into some of the areas uh, most of the uh, missions that uh, are ongoing. And uh, I received training from an anthropologist, uh, so that I thought that was really uh, appreciative. Now, I'm using stock photos from uh, different uh, photographers in the media. Uh, we had a policy in MSF not to take pictures of people um, for out of respect. So um, this is an ambulance service. And I use this one because if you notice the name of the politician on the ambulance, um, he shares a name with me, Joseph Sa. So uh, when I came on board, everybody thought that I was Liberian, Joseph Sa. And uh, I came on board and I'm like, no, I'm you know, American of Arab background. So uh, again, through some of the trainings and, and openness that I had with an anthropologist, uh, Sa is a Kissy tribal name, meaning firstborn. Um, and it allowed me to quickly establish rapport and trust with uh, large segments of the uh, population that I was working with. And then, of course, the tragedy that was the West African out Ebola outbreak uh, was devastating. We, uh, most of us remember that. And another dynamic of uh, MSF was psychosocial support, so psychologists and social um, scientists were involved in how to provide uh, first aid, emotional first aid to both patients um, and each other, national staff and, and expatriate staff. Um, communication, interpersonal communication with patients uh, to create a better uh, situation for the populations that we serve was a part of this process. But um, also it, around communication, uh, in all of the all of the emergencies that I've pointed out, uh, communication and rumors is uh, problematic. So, if you go back to two th uh, uh, January twentieth, when the uh, initial situation reports started coming out of the WHO around this uh, coronavirus, the seventh one they started talking about a strategic objective is to communicate risk 
to provide risk communication to all communities and to tamp down misinformation. So again, they're incorporating an interdisciplinary approach to this response at the WHO level and uh, in all areas of society. So in media, uh, from Wired Magazine, uh, parsing out you know, bad information around ibuprofen, uh, FEMA, uh, trying to tamp down rumors. Uh, this is the Galapagos WhatsApp group around their emergency response in Ecuador, Salud Ecuador, uh, trying to tamp down misinformation, of course. So this is something that I pulled up from the New York Times, uh, people burning cell towers in Britain because of the uh, fear that they spread disease. And I thought that the germ theory of disease was settled a long time ago. So it's really, again, difficult for me to wrap my head around this. So I'm really glad to be working with social scientists uh, around the best way to deal with this kind of rumors and misinformation. And of course, the CDC. So I'm gonna wrap things up. Um, I was in the tail end of this. I came on board in early, early February. Uh, I was there when the schools opened up in Liberia after being closed for six weeks. I was there to see the borders open up and the national curfew and great rejoicing going on. Uh, I built a hospital with a team of 10 expats and 90 national staff of MSF. I left and then three days later, they opened up the hospital. So it was a little bit bittersweet. Lessons learned. Um, all of these epidemics, with, with the exception of the uh, current one, we've gotten through. Uh, we will get through this one. It will be complicated. Uh, it is an emergency, it will be stressful, there will be chaos still. Um, but what I hope to do is to help take the lessons learned from this event and take it into other areas of society that we know are coming, which is biodiversity loss. A million species are at risk according to a big assessment by the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. We know biodiversity is crashing, we know climate change is upon us. And um, hopefully we will take some of the things that we are learning here and apply them in an interdisciplinary approach to other crises that are pending. Um, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Royden. Uh, Alan, you should have control now to share your screen. So feel free to uh, start whenever you're ready. Okay, is that working? Yes, it is. Very good. Let me see if I can just, there we go. Okay, so I'm going to talk a bit about some of the modeling that's been going on. And um, uh, so normally I talk a lot more about basics of epi modeling, but I guess these days we all are apparently armchair epidemiologists. And so doubtless you've seen um, and heard all about the reproductive number. That's the sort of fundamental uh, concept that we learn from theory. So R0, the average number of secondary infections that someone causes over the duration of their infection. So this little cartoon here, I'm not quite sure why the people are so happy looking. Um, but this little cartoon here has uh, R0 equals 2. Each person infects two people. And so the um, epidemic spreads because that number is greater than one. Everyone infects more than one person. And in particular, during this early part of the outbreak, um, uh, epidemic is going to spread exponentially. 
So for coronavirus, you know, one of the first things that modelers and, and people analyzing the data do is try to estimate this R0. And estimates have been gained, you know, typically estimates come out at between 2.5 and 3, although there's quite a lot of uncertainty, and some studies um, suggest much higher values than this. So then we get the epidemic curve if we model the interactions between susceptible and infectious people, and then the recovery of infectious people. So at first, uh, the number of, of people infected grows exponentially, then that growth slows, and then finally reverses. And the reason for that is if we also think about the number of susceptible people in the population, as the infection spreads, the number of susceptibles in the population um, decreases. And so the reason that the epidemic slows and reverses is due to depletion of the susceptible population. So here we're ignoring births and deaths, and we are assuming that once someone recovers, they are permanently immune. Uh, that's a question we'll come back to. And so the, the key thing you see from epidemic models is you don't need the entire population to be immune in order for infection to stop spreading. We have this phenomenon called herd immunity. Once the number of susceptibles drops sufficiently, there aren't enough susceptible people around for the infection to um, continue uh, spreading in the population. And in fact, the level of susceptibility in the population below which um, herd immunity kicks in is just given by the reciprocal of R0. So if you have an R0 of 2.5, you need 60% of the population to be immune. An R0 of 3, you need roughly two-thirds of the population to be immune in order for the infection to die away by itself. And so just thinking about this very simple epidemiological model, you can do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and already this paints an extremely bleak picture. So if... Um, as some of the initial data from China was suggesting, the, the fraction of people who get infected is 1%. If we need to get 60% um, of the U.S. population to become immune um, in the absence of a vaccine for herd immunity to kick in, um, that means you're going to have 2 million deaths. So that's basically where that headline figure from the Imperial College model comes from. Or, or rather, I can say you can get that headline figure that comes out of the Imperial College model from just a back-of-the-envelope calculation. And then if, say, 2% of cases require an intensive care unit visit, this means 4 million intensive care visits in the time span of a few months, which is clearly going to overwhelm the capacity of, the healthcare, of any healthcare system, um, let alone our healthcare system. Um, so people talk about this herd immunity strategy. So you know, one approach is to let the epidemic rip through a population but trying to protect vulnerable groups. So you allow the infection to spread in order to gain herd immunity in a population, but at the same time you try to reduce spread to groups that are more likely to um, die if they catch the infection. So the Imperial College model, this figure is from a version of the model that came out in, the, in mid, mid to late uh, March. An Imperial College crew, and I should say they're a sort of a very well-respected group, They've done a lot of work ahead of um, this current situation. Uh, they've been involved in pandemic flu preparedness um, in the UK, and their paper examined the impact of various mitigation strategies using a really very detailed model that um, it's unclear exactly how it works, but when you read the description in current and previous papers, it talks about having a synthetic population of, say, the UK or US, 
They talk about how people move between home and workplaces or schools and transmission in the communities. They have people interacting at various levels of um, social interactions, and they model a whole bunch, as you can see in this graph here, of different mitigation strategies. And the important thing to look at here is the horizontal red line, which reflects the um, intensive care unit um, capacity, say, in the UK. And um, none of the mitigation strategies has a large enough, they consider in this figure, has a large enough impact on spread to um, prevent that intensive care unit capacity uh, being exceeded. So then they looked at uh, stronger mitigation measures, including general social distancing. And they found that, you know, the sort of things that we're doing right now can slow the epidemic sufficiently to protect, um, protect the ability of the healthcare system to respond. Uh, you'll notice there's a big white area on this graph. Let's go to the next one. But then the bad news here is that if you, once you let off measures, so the um, social distancing and other measures are imposed during that shaded region of the figure, but once you let those measures um, relax, then you get a second wave of infection. And I mean, the, and the fact that that's going to happen is is pretty clear because nothing fundamentally has changed. You know, um, you haven't reduced transmission. The number of susceptibles has probably decreased a bit during the time um, that you were doing social distancing, but not very much. And so basically, when you relax measures, you're back in the situation you found yourself in before you impose the measures. And so the epidemic, the infection is just going to rip through the population. So those sorts of social distancing measures, really what they're doing is trying to buy us time, trying to s um, spread out the epidemic curve so that hospital healthcare system can cope with it, but also trying to buy us time until we get some sort of measure like a vaccine or some sort of treatment that either can um, induce um, immunity in people or that can mitigate the worst outcomes of the infection. Um, another model I should mention um, is this University of Washington Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation model. And this is a quite different sort of model to the Imperial College. So this is a purely statistical model. The Imperial College model actually had you know, individuals moving around in the, their model, interacting, um, transmitting infection, recovering, and so on. The University of Washington model is just a, um, a curve-fitting exercise. So it tries to fit a curve to the deaths in some region. And then it says, okay, as, as a consequence of those deaths, authority is going to impose social distancing. And then it uses the, social, the impact of social distancing seen in Wuhan, China, to predict what the impact of social distancing would be in that region. And as more data becomes available, this model's predictions, as we've seen in the media, undergo constant updates. Um, it often seems to give more optimistic predictions than other models, which of course some people quite like. And the other really important thing to keep in mind here is that this is not a transmission model. So this model says nothing about what happens when uh, measures are relaxed. So this is a key slide here. Models and their predictions come with un considerable uncertainties. We have far from complete knowledge of the epidemiology of this um, virus. Data on transmission is incomplete. We don't really know how many cases there have been. Uh, we have little idea of what level of immunity there is in the population. Some people hope there's a lot more immunity around than people imagine. 
Um, very important parameters are, are incompletely characterized, so um, are naught. Uh, the case fatality ratio is not really known, um, or rather estimates of it may well be inflated by reporting biases towards severe cases. So if we're not seeing less severe cases, uh, the fraction of cases that lead to deaths is going to be inflated. Um, there's this asymptomatic trend. A lot of people are asymptomatic, have asymptomatic infection, so we don't know what fraction of cases are asymptomatic or how infectious those people are. Immunity is a really important picture, uh, important question. You know, the simple picture we have of herd immunity assumes lifelong immunity after recovery. Immunity could be temporary or could require multiple infections to get complete immunity. And in terms of predicting the impact of social distancing, we have little to no uh, knowledge on how uh, people adhere to social distancing measures, particularly after the short term. And so I'm very much aware that there, there are a lot of pitfalls here for modelers, in part because predictions have become intensely political, and there's potential for significant damage to be caused by models, both in terms of public health consequences of getting things wrong, but also in the bigger picture of, of the credibility of modeling. So overly optimistic predictions don't help, predictions that don't convey large uncertainty don't help, and one sees lots of um, modeling out there uh, that's technically inadequate in one way or another. And that's where I'll finish for now. All right, thanks so much, Alan. Um, we're now gonna move to uh, Dalton George and Eli Ornstein are gonna talk about sort of the, the citizen science response uh, to the COVID-19 outbreak. So Eli and Dalton, you should both have the ability to share your screens. Okay, can everyone uh, hear me and see my screen? Is it working? Yes, we can, go ahead. All right, excellent. So um, yes, as Todd said, um, Eli and I will be giving um, sort of overview of uh, uh, DIY and community responses to the COVID-19 crisis. I'm gonna give a quick five um, on an overview of some examples of uh, some of these initiatives. And then Eli is actually going to share his own personal experience as a participant um, in one of these initiatives. So just as a reminder for those who may not be as familiar with the DIY movement, it is a participatory science movement that seeks to facilitate STEM skills building, uh, research and development um, outside of the traditional institutional structures of science. Um, it brings amateurs and professionals together alike um, and takes an open source, open sharing, community driven approach to creating more accessible and low cost science and technology. And the two most visible bodies within this movement are the maker community and the DIY bio community. And I've listed um, a, few, a, a few of the fields of expertise that um, exist within those bodies. So first of all, um, many of us are aware of this global shortage um, concerning uh, personal protective equipment and ventilators um, uh, for healthcare workers. And within our own context here in the United States, um, New York City um, and its healthcare system has suffered um, more than, arguably more than any other city in our country. Um, and the DIY community has come together here uh, under this banner, um, NYC Makes PPE. And this is a group of engineers, makers, and healthcare professionals that are leveraging DIY manufacturing technology to support PPE production in New York City, pooling together resources, um, financial and uh, mechanical alike 
to crank out things like masks and face shields for healthcare professionals. Um, after these things are produced, they are immediately incorporated into the healthcare systems of these cities. Um, so, uh, similarly, the uh, industrial production has not been swift at responding to the need of ventilators, um, not only in our country, but also abroad. So to help out with that, the DIY community has organized this project called VentMon. And this is an open source public R&D effort to monitor, coordinate, and collaborate on open source ventilator design projects. The goal of which is to come up with ways to evaluate the rapid prototyping of low-cost alternative ventilators to, again, be incorporated rapidly and directly into uh, the healthcare systems um, of that particular community of need. Um, and at the bottom of the screen here, you will see um, the evaluation of open source ventilators. That link is actually a comprehensive criteria that this group has developed in order to assess uh, the, I think it's about, I think it's close to 100 different open source ventilator projects that are currently happening. Um, and I'll be sure to share all of these links uh, in the chat window after um, my quick five is concluded. So the DIY bio community has also been involved um, in COVID-19 response uh, with a focused orientation on the issue of testing. Um, this is one example of one of these open initiatives led by the entity known as Just One Giant Lab or Joggle. Um, and this initiative uh, is led by DIY bio leaders uh, from both France and the United States um, and is seeking to develop and share open source methodologies to safely test for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 using multiple approaches. Since its inception, it has spun off into a myriad of other projects related to the COVID-19 crisis, um, projects that are related to vaccine development as well as tracking disease spread. And I believe um, Todd has actually served in a biosafety advisory role on this project, so he may actually have some interesting insider perspectives on what's going on with this jogging initiative. So this is, um, this is the last slide for my quick five. Um, and in it, I wanted to just point out some quick hitter themes um, that I have pulled out as I've been monitoring from these efforts, uh, monitoring these efforts from a virtual distance. And the first of which is that these COVID-19 projects are seeking legitimation of knowledge and through open source collaboration and verification, which leads to high degrees of transparency and scrutiny and development processes. Um, so these groups, they're not waiting for any stamp of approval or or permission from a formal entity to carry out research and development tasks. They are a self-motivated group of professionals and amateur designers and designer researchers and engineers. They are self-organized and notably interdisciplinary. Um, the, second, uh, the second theme is that these COVID-19 projects are viewed um, from a perspective as providing an important rapid response to the crisis in contrast to slow moving or even loafing formal bureaucratic mechanisms. Um, so this is, to me, this is seen as even more pertinent in a country, in a, in a nation state context such as ours, given our federal response to the problem so far. Um, and lastly, these COVID-19 projects aim to provide low cost solutions, especially for low resource communities. And this is important because while rich Western countries such as ours may be able to provide themselves with what, we, with what they need, COVID-19 will start hitting places that cannot. Um, and this perspective is expressed directly from one of the um, Ventmon project leaders um, who states that they are very aware that probably, probably some, if not most, of these open source ventilator 
um, design initiatives will not end up being used in the United States, but it's important to have this developmental capacity in order to plan for other areas that might use it, might need it. So in closing, I wanted to leave everyone with just a curiosity question. Um, and that is, in this historical moment, are we, could we, are we possibly trending towards a more permanent resilience role for DIY science and engineering, for pandemics and other forms of crisis? And if this is good, what are some potential opportunities to enhance these capacities? Um, and that's it for my quick five. So I'd like to turn it over to Eli so that he can share about his direct experience in one of these local community initiatives. Eli? All right, can you all see me? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Um, so uh, I'll give you the, the story um, of the efforts I'm involved in, but first I wanted to just show you um, what I'm actually making, uh, which is a few different types of PPE and sanitation equipment. Um, so uh, the big one is this, which is a face shield. I'm showing you a slightly crappy one, so I didn't want to sacrifice a good one. Uh, so what it's used for is, especially during intubations, um, when there is a sort of a, a gross spray, so not like fine droplets that drift on the air, but when you're worried about being splattered, um, you wear one of these. They're also used to help mitigate an inferior respirator. So um, the homemade kind consists of a 3D printed brim, um, a foam piece to make it seal with your face, a clear headband, which is usually something uh, similar to uh, overhead transparency material, and an elastic back. Wear it like this, you can rip the front off and replace it with a new transparency so it's semi-disposable. Um, these are in high demand, and these are being um, coordinated through NC State right now. Um, there's also these, probably the second biggest um, well-accepted piece of 3D printed PPE. This is an ear saver for a surgical mask. So surgical masks loop over your ears. When you have to wear them all day, every day, instead of how they usually worn, they actually chafe and cut will make you bleed. So these provide a different way for them to hook around the back of your head. Um, and we're getting tons of demands for this. Um, other things which are more for home use, which I'm making, this is a hands-free door holder. Um, it's used to turn handles, hook things. It has a little slot to turn a key. Um, and probably the first piece of well-known community source PPE um, is something called a Wuhan hook, started in Wuhan. It's an Allen wrench either taped to or held in a 3D printer with a lighter. The idea is you use this to press buttons or keypads and then turn on the lighter to try to sanitize it. Um, those are uh, not real popular in the U.S. because we have fewer people um, using keypads and elevator buttons to get into their homes, although I imagine it's in New York there probably being used. Um, so in terms of how uh, I started making all these things, um, we initially had a discussion in the lab um, about whether to use our 3D printer to try to help make medical equipment. And we first decided um, really no, um, because it was very hard to tell um, where this equipment could go to. Um, what to make, what would be safe. Uh, and in the first two weeks, so basically from midway through March to the end of March, uh, the landscape of this was a lot of contradictory organizing and engineering efforts. Um, but we rapidly changed our mind um, because, one, there are these very compelling anecdotes. Um, 
which uh, give the idea that even if you have a low capacity, we only have one 3D printer, which takes a couple of hours to make any, any one thing, um, each piece of PPE being used to protect a medical professional, professional could really um, prevent one case of infection um, in a, a very um, dangerous environment. Um, so that there is motivation to contribute, even if it seems small, in the face of a big issue. Um, and uh, the other thing that happened is we did start to see some uh, more validated PPE designs get produced in collaboration with hospitals. Um, so that gave us the confidence to say, yes, we should try to contribute. Um, and very rapidly, we got in touch um, with doctors making house calls who provide the physicians who make the rounds at a lot of nursing homes in North Carolina. So that's a very um, risky population, as you know. Um, and they were asking for face shields. They didn't have any. And as a relatively small practice, they had very poor access um, to the limited supply that were out there. Um, so with that documented need in hand, um, and uh, a specific design, which had been validated by Mass General Hospital. Um, I set about doing the organizing myself because, as I mentioned at that time, there, there really was no organizing in our area for this type of work. So I actually recruited um, people in the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area, representing about 33 3D printers. Um, if they had been printing at max capacity, about 18 hours a day, unlimited by time and resources, we could have made about 400 face shields a day. Um, because we were limited, um, we actually made about a, a tenth of that. So we, we produced 200 face shields in about five days from March 20th to 25th for doctors making house calls. Um, and in terms of the organization, um, I took it upon myself to tell people, um, this is the file we're going to print. Um, it's safe for this reason. If they had technical questions about printing, um, or assembly that were not answered in the guide released um, from the original makers. Um, I answered them personally to the best of my ability, um, and I handled the distribution of this. So I, I uh, took a lot of materials that Heika had donated. So Heika actually obtained and donated materials for 400 masks or shields, so she deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, and I uh, parsed those out to uh, the individual makers so they could assemble their shields. And then we set up a sort of a secure, sterile drop for doctors making house calls. Um, and at the end of that week, which was a lot of organizing, um, I had a decision over whether to continue to try to expand this or stop or do something else. Um, and uh, what I did was I saw that there were a lot of other efforts like mine, sort of small groups starting to coalesce, moving away from that period of intense chaos. Um, and I, I thought the need to... Um, be more coordinated was more important um, than the need to maintain the, the specific structures that we had. Um, so I advised everyone in my group to join with the NC State-led effort, which actually started a little later, but had the huge advantage of being tied in by virtue of NC State's institutional presence um, to hospitals, to state government, and to tremendous technical expertise that we have. Um, so the very next thing that happened um, is I got really frustrated with them uh, because it took about three weeks for the experts at NC State to actually release a printing request to uh, the, everyone who'd signed up with them. 
Um, and they said this was because they were considering legal, safety issues, um, logistics, all of which I'm sure they were. Um, but three weeks seemed like a lot, in particular because the design and the protocol they released were actually identical to the design we had happened to choose in my group and the protocol we had used. So I, I had that worry that Dalton mentioned about loafing. Um, we experienced um, the, the chaos that Royden mentioned very firsthand. Um, but I want to point out moving forward, um, we actually should give tremendous credit to um, at least NC State and other um, similar institutions because um, they exist in this space in between pure community and industrial slash healthcare. And the capacity there actually dwarfs what um, I'm seeing as being found in people's homes. Um, so I'm seeing uh, that NC State can produce um, the material for face masks. We're producing several hundred face shields a day just in-house. Um, and groups like the NIH are now curating safe, validated, uh, clinically tested designs. Um, so they're starting to centralize and use their expertise in the way you would sort of hope. Um, and I just want to end um, on one point, which is that my brother, Alex Hornstein, is actually coordinating a ventilator production effort in Rhode Island and a couple other northeastern states. Um, they're one of many approaches, but they're actually doing the statewide one for Rhode Island. If you're curious, um, you're welcome to look them up at ventilatorproject.org. Um, and I'll leave it there for now. All right, thanks so much, Eli and Dolan. We'll uh, shift uh, quickly now to uh, Zach. Zach, you're muted, so we can't hear you. Um, thanks for allowing me to jump in at the last minute on this. I just uh, wanted to I wanted to insert myself into this panel just because uh, of the questions. So I'm sharing my screen now, um, and this is one article from Politico from April 2nd. When can America reopen from its coronavirus shutdown? And obviously, I think most most everybody on this call probably has been uh, hearing this on on various uh, media channels, and um, it's it's a politically fraught discussion. Um, and so I just thought since it's, it's really a, you know, the, the, this is where you, economists come in. Um, and I, this is not something I'm working on myself right now, but I, I'm following this research. That there is some actual research on this going on. Um, so I thought I would just convey that quickly, uh, what's going on in this space, so that people have um, maybe some more, um, some more rigorous analysis to think about uh, when this question, when you hear this question come up. Uh, so just. I threw together uh, this material really quickly, but um, so on the screen here, I'm just I'm summarizing um, some some analysis by um, co-authors at so by some authors at University of Wyoming. Um, so this they have they've conducted the first benefit published uh, the first published benefit cost analysis of uh, social distancing to for uh, flattening the curve for COVID-19. Um, the working paper link is on the screen. I'll share it in the chat box, uh, but it's published. It's forthcoming now in the Journal of Benefit Cost Analysis. 
Um, it's a very straightforward paper. It's, I think it's about 15 pages. Um, and they use, so they use a standard uh, SIR, uh, susceptible infected recovered uh, transmission model that's in the style of what uh, Alan was uh, showing uh, from Imperial College, but the Imperial College is much more complicated than the model, the transmission model that the authors uh, use here. Um, they, they, they basically concoct their own uh, simple SIR model in order to, to do policy analysis. Um, I think that's one thing to return to is uh, maybe looking at a more realistic, for example, using the Imperial College model, how would the results change? But in any case, they use, they use a transmission model, uh, which allows them to look at the progression of uh, the disease with and without uh, different levels of social distancing. And then what they do is they basically, you've seen, I'm sure many of you have seen a figure like this uh, in various places where you've got, you know, an unprotected, uh, curve, disease load curve without protective measures and with protective measures. And the key issue here is the health uh, healthcare system capacity. Um, so the way that they uh, account for the economic costs of, you know, exceeding this capacity is first by calculating the cost of, of COVID, which is um, their calculation is standard, but quite simple. Uh, so it's basically the number of cases, number of COVID cases under different scenarios times uh, the fatality rate for that scenario. And then uh, to get a dollar value of the typical practice here, which again, we can come back to, or um, I can refer you to some ways of thinking about this, um, is to multiply this uh, fatalities basically by the value of the statistical life, um, which the value that's accepted in this literature is, um, you know, there's a large range, there's a large, there's first of all, that's probably the first thing to say is there's a huge amount of uncertainty around the VSL, um, but the, but a, but a a central estimate that's often used now um, is $10 million. Um, and the way that this plays out then is that you have a higher fatality, their model in their model, they have a higher fatality rate uh, when cases are exceeding the health system capacity. And so that, that, that then ends up capturing the benefits of social distancing or flattening the curve in that you're not getting uh, the same level of, um, of fatalities without uh, when you when you reduce that low, that curve below the healthcare system capacity, um, in terms of the cost of social distancing, um, they do you know it's this is like a kind of a rapid response benefit cost analysis. So I would you know this is a pretty crude but basic uh, assumptions here. So they assume a 6.2 percent annual decline in GDP from uh, with social distancing in effect, um, and then to, they but so they also assume and this is I think an important point in the discussion that um, GDP also takes a hit if you didn't do social distancing. So there'd clearly be an impact of COVID on economic productivity, let alone uh, human life, uh, if, you if you did nothing. So they assume uh, 2% uh, without social distancing um, for, and they, they uh, talk about why they have that number in the paper. And then another key part of their results um, is the assumption about how economic production recovers after either social distancing or the or the direct impact of the disease. Um, and so they assume a GDP, GDP re, uh, rebound growth rate of between two and five percent per year. Um, and they draw those numbers from the 1918 Spanish flu, so which for which there's some uh, some prior information about that. That's just what that that looks like. And so they look um, they look at this is the GDP path over a couple of years. Um, and they look at scenarios with social distancing, and then they look at a couple of uncontrolled social uh, distancing scenarios 
uh, with where there's fast economic recovery versus uh, slow economic recovery. Um, and they find that the um, under sort of the base, the, the middle level of uncontrolled scenario compared to a, the controlled scenario, so with social distancing, um, there are net benefits to the U.S. of uh, 5.2 trillion U.S. dollars. So there are net benefits there from their from their calculations. Um, but before hanging your hat too much on those numbers, I think probably one of the more useful things about the analysis is really uh, understanding how those results depend on different assumptions that go into it. And uh, it turns out that the critical assumptions for determining whether or not there's positive or negative net benefits here are, um, but the one that the one that they highlight as being, you know, the, the one that they, I guess, have the most uncertainty about, uh, is the speed of economic recoveries under both, you know, with or without social distancing. How quickly is, is um, economic productivity recovering? Um, and then um, I think another important one that they do they do address, but this is one that's well known, in, at least in environmental and resource economics literatures, as being, you know, it's always present is this uncertainty about the valuation of mortality impact. So that $10 million is just one number. And the way that we get that number in economics is, um, you know, there's, it, it leads to a large amount of uncertainty in that number. Um, there are some important, I mean, so this, this is the first public, published benefit-cost analysis of social distancing. So I think it's an important, um, you know, stepping stone along this path of thinking, this, thinking through the, the sort of the popular questions that are, uh, being addressed in the popular media. There's also a blog post that I've seen. Uh, it's back, a back of the envelope um, calculation, basically, on a blog post. Um, and I think the reason I mentioned that one is they use a different method for evaluating the cost of um, death, basically, but from COVID, uh, using a, a technique or an, um, a method called quality-adjusted life years. And the main consequence of that method compared to the value of a statistical life is that uh, the deaths deaths among the elderly are worth less uh, using that type of calculation than among younger age groups? Um, and it has been argued to do that a VSL uh, should account for similar types of effects or be perhaps have age-specific VSLs. Obviously, this is that's an extremely controversial, um, difficult discussion to have. And uh, it's also important to note that uh, the VSL has been used, for example. Uh, looking at benefit cost analysis for the uh, U.S. Clean Air Act, you know, for which the primary benefits are, um, you know, reductions in uh, respiratory problems among uh, elderly populations due to reductions in air pollution. That, that's where the bulk, uh, like 95% of the benefits of the Clean Air Act are associated with the VSL. And a lot of those lives that are being saved in those calculations are elderly populations as well. You know, you might think of the ones that as being similar populations as the ones at risk of COVID. Um, so, you know, they're really the, this current cost benefit cost analysis study is following, um, you know, following previous approach, following the previous methods that have been used for this type of work. Um, my view, and this is my last slide on this uh, material. So, my view is that sort of overall, um, when I'm thinking about this question of like you know, when to reopen the economy. Um, I think it's more, there's more, if there's more subtle questions that are probably, probably need to be answered than just when. But, um, so social distancing, I think the evidence is pretty, pretty, um, overwhelming, especially now where we stand after a couple of weeks into this. So social distancing is extremely effective. 
Um, it also has economic benefits. I think that's just an important thing to, to start uh, recognizing here. And um, one case in point of that actually is uh, there's a, a paper about the 1918 flu and looking at different locations and uh, geographies in the U.S. and how they responded with varying degrees of social distancing. Um, and in particular, there was an example that that paper discusses about Minneapolis and St. Paul during the 1918 flu. Minneapolis practiced much more, um, they, they instituted social distancing much earlier um, than St. Paul did, and they fared much better economically uh, in the long run. And uh, the authors of this paper, um, using econometric analysis, attribute, so they, they, they argue, they find that, um, you know, early effective social distancing really led to uh, better long-run economic outcomes. Um, I, do, I do think it's important to think, so as we're doing social distancing, and a lot of what we've seen here, you know, today, I think is getting, is trying to address this question in a lot of different ways. It's important to think about how we sustain economic productivity and livelihoods. Uh, that's an essential part of this discussion. And actually, if you're thinking about sort of the cost effectiveness of social distancing or the, the you know, net benefits of social distancing policies, you need to think about at the same time the economic stimulus that's going hand in hand with that. Because that economic stimulus, uh, is, you know, if it's working the way it should, should hasten the recovery of the economy after social distancing subsides. So it's really going to be a key determinant about determinant of the net benefits of social distancing is what type, what type of economic stimulus is it coupled with. And then finally, um, I think there's just some obvious, as we've addressed in the, the other uh, talks, there's uh, a lot of unknowns here, um, including on the economic aspects. So I think, you know, we, and this has been discussed in a couple places, but more rapid research is needed on uh, cost-effective methods for social distancing. So, you know, it's not like we just do the social distancing and there's a cost to that. We can do this better. You know, we can learn how to do social distancing uh, better and and sustain, you know, safe economic production in certain in certain ways in certain sectors. Um, so that political Politico article that I showed you at the beginning um, has a number of commentaries from economists, and one of one of them addresses this issue of how to actually alter production systems uh, for to allow for social distancing. I also think the economic analysis of social distancing, um, one of the things that that previous benefit-cost analysis is really missing, in my opinion, is that there's no analysis or consideration of second waves of infection. You know, uh, what happens when, I mean, that's that's been widely discussed in the media, and I think it's missing from uh, from any rigorous analysis of the uh, benefits and costs of, of these social distancing policies. How do we, how do we anticipate what's going to happen in future waves of the disease? as well as uncertainty about the arrival of effective treatment um, and vaccines. Like incorporating those into the, into the benefits and costs, the timing of when that vaccine or a treatment, if, it all, if they do arrive, uh, what's the kind of expected time horizon there um, is a really important part of, the, of a improving this type of analysis. So I'll stop there. All right, thanks, Zach. Um, we're going to turn it over to Nora. I just want to remind everyone that we're going to be um, going longer. Um, um, we definitely want to hear Nora's um, perspectives on this, and then um, we will then open it up for discussion after that. So um, don't worry that things will keep going past uh, 1 o'clock. So Nora, please. Uh, okay, thanks very much, and thanks for sticking around, folks. I don't think I'm going to use my whole 10 minutes here. Um, what I wanted to do today was reflect a little bit 
on um, COVID-19 and genetically modified plants and animals um, within the framework of globalization. Uh, and I don't have any slides, so it's just going to be me talking. Um, and um, what I want to talk about here is how uh, COVID-19 and GM uh, plants and animals both circulate within global structures. You know, they're obviously not the same thing. They don't have the same outcome. But I think our experiences of COVID-19 can do quite a bit uh, for us as researchers of GM to understand uh, their circulation in global networks and the varied reactions that um, GM products get uh, in that circulation. So I want to give you a real simple definition of globalization, um, which is the proliferation of cross-border flows. This can be people, ideas, goods, and services. And obviously what we're seeing right now is the proliferation of the cross-border flow of viruses. Uh, current thinking on globalization emphasizes that while it promises this kind of pervasive and unhindered flow of money, ideas, and people, on closer inspection, it's actually traveling along some pretty well-defined and localized channels. And in this way, globalization is both highly local and dependent on local settings and also transcends the local at the same time. So uh, for those of you who know Bruno Latour's work, you probably know his um, pretty famous analogy uh, between globalization and a train system. He talks about railroads having uh, def definition and shape. Uh, global paths are similar to networks of tracks and stations and rail cars. And all of these are constructed by real people with specific destinations and timetables in mind. And people participating in rail systems have different pieces of information and different understandings of what it's all about based on where they're located. There are very few people who have kind of the bird's eye view of the entire rail system. Um, so as Latour famously noted, globalization is, quote, local at all points. Um, but again, trains look really different if you're a passenger, if you're a conductor, a station master, an engineer, and so on. And so right now, we're all kind of passengers on the train that is COVID-19. Now, when it comes to genetically modified plants and animals, we tend to feel more like conductors or engineers. And I know some of us in the room really are engineers. Um, as passengers, what we're seeing now is that when people ride trains, um, it's a very different experience, and they're bringing to their journeys personalities, histories, and experiences. And all of this is helping people create meaning from their journeys. Uh, we're also seeing, however, that passengers cannot move about as they please. We kind of have to ride the tracks available to us. And again, few passengers know the details of the entire system. Train tracks, as you know, are always kind of disappearing into the distance, and so it can be hard to see where it's all leading. And although Latour doesn't mention this aspect of rail travel, I think anyone who's been on a train knows that there are different kinds of accommodations. You know, you can travel first class, second class, and of course, some people are hitching rides in boxcars. So all of this is to say that while some aspects of globalization are visible at the local level, other aspects are invisible and beyond immediate control. Uh, this is something we talk about all the time in GES. This colloquium is about bringing that invisibility into view. Uh, but there's an important consequence for the way globalization is both local and persistently invisible in its entirety. 
as a localized thing, globalization is always personal for the people involved. It doesn't have an impersonal side. Just the opposite, as COVID is showing us, globalization can change our daily rhythms, the way we relate to our family, friends, and neighbors, and colleagues. It can really reach into the, our most personal relationships. Instead, the counterpoint to a personalized globalization is a concealed, out-of-reach globalization. And when it, globalization operates out of sight, it can seem to happen of its own accord, like this virus that seems to move among us invisibly, almost as if it has its own agency. Its concealed quality makes globalization disorienting to the people who live it, and that's certainly what we're experiencing now. Uh, usually to make sense of the changes taking place around them, people in globalized settings develop personalized explanations. Um, and what that means will be different according to the cultural context. What we're seeing is that um, people already have ways of transforming per impersonal forces into a personalized phenomenon they can understand, uh, whether that's the rise in xenophobia associated with COVID. I'm totally sure in rural Mexico that uh, if COVID isn't already caught up in witchcraft accusations, it's going to be caught up in witchcraft accusations because this is one way people express interpersonal tension. In the U.S., we've already had conversations about how social inequality affects who gets sick and who gets health care. And we can imagine such nuances of hierarchy taking place uh, in different settings, uh, playing out according to age, gender, and other criteria, not just in society at large, but even within families. So for us at GES, what I'm hoping COVID-19 will do for us uh, is offer some moment of reflection. Uh, I'm hoping this is a moment we can afford to take because I also hope that everyone here and their loved ones remain safe and healthy. What is it like to be on the receiving end of a concealed out-of-reach globalization? What is it like to be the object of an initiative that seeks to alter my life in ways over which I have partial control? Of course, an important difference between COVID and GM is that the latter means to hold out a hope for better lives. But I want us to never lose sight of the way all that hope has personal consequences and that all of us in a globalized world are navigating a particular tension. Uh, globalization offers incredible freedoms, liberation, opportunities we've never had in the past. But it does also change our families, our personal relationships. And how can we take advantage of globalization um, without also harming our closest connections? And I'll leave it at that. All right. Thanks so much, Nora. That was that was a great sort of fitting end to this discussion. And so now I want to um, open it up for um, for questions. Um, I see some coming in on the chat box that I think people are already answering. But if you raise your hand, uh, we can unmute you and you can. Um, ask your question and address it to um, one, two, or all of the uh, presenters. Does anybody have any questions? Or any of the speakers have any questions for the other presenters? 
I had a question for Royden. If, if he's around. Yep, I'm here. Uh, okay, so uh, the, the way you ended, right, on uh, biodiversity questions, the other much larger crises that we seem to have been ignoring, um, I'm wondering what you imagine might change. Say, best-case scenario, if we learn something from this, what, what concretely do you think might change in those efforts? Uh, our behavior. So, you know, there is this, so to be clear, this is bringing a lot of tragedy to, you know, large segments of society. Uh, there's certainly a lot going on that most, much of us have, do not know about um, in cities that do not get too much media representation, like Guayaquil, Ecuador. So uh, my hope, my best case scenario, is that uh, we collectively learn uh, a different way of doing things that still affords very nice things about our lifestyle, but also uh, puts into place the importance of looking ahead, preparing, so to say. Uh, preparing is important for pandemics, but preparing is important for climate change and biodiversity conservation as well. And a lot of the things that we are doing, we will probably continue to do. Maybe travel less, maybe connect more virtually. Certainly not all of it, but uh, maybe some of it. So those are some of the thoughts that I had. Thank you, Eli. Did that answer your question? Yes. All right, we're still waiting for questions. So in the meantime, I've got a two that I'm one for Alan and one for you, Nora. Um, so Nora, first, I'm, I'm curious if, if you have a perspective on terms of how um, an outbreak like COVID-19 um, either exacerbates people's fears of globalization or sort of reinforces concerns about globalization of, of how a virus, particularly like this one that seems to be affecting um, both the developing world and the um, you know, the developed world sort of almost equally, um, which is a little different than some of the other outbreaks like Ebola, but how that um, impacts sort of the views of globalization. And then, Alan, I was curious, in terms of the, the modeling, when you were talking about the uncertainty, um, I'm interested in your perspective on, because of the sort of high uncertainties with these particular models, of whether you think it's it's valuable or more damaging to actually be publicizing them the way that they are sort of in this highly sort of political um, world we live in with this particular virus. Uh, so thank you. Nora stepped out. All right, well then, Alan. Uh... <laughs> You're both. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, my, my feeling is that the uncertainties are sufficiently high that it's difficult to sort of project numbers. I, so I don't, I don't trust those sort of numerical, you know, saying if there would be a thousand deaths versus two thousand deaths. I mean, what's clear is the models, you know, all paint the same sort of qualitative picture that you know something needs to be done and needs to be done, and you know, doing something quickly is better than delaying and um, doing it later. Um, the other thing I sort of said about uncertainty, I think quite a lot of the models. Quite a lot of modeling that I've seen doesn't convey uncertainty, or even where it does convey uncertainty, it only sort of accounts for some components of uncertainty. 
So, you know, it, it accounts for maybe uncertainty in some of the model parameters like R0 or the case fatality ratio. But we know that there's a lot more uncertainty than that. So, you know, I often worry about models looking like they give a much more precise answer than they really do. And then, as you say, this is all in a highly political environment. And so, you know, you see some of these model predictions, like, for example, the University of Washington model that seems to be unrelentingly optimistic compared to other models, um, you know, being used to justify reopening when the model isn't even capable of asking questions about that. So models being used for the wrong purpose. Thanks so much, Alan. We have a question from Fred. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I actually had a question for Nora, but uh, given that she's not here, um, I, I was really wanted her to speak more about the connection in terms of genetically engineered crops and animals and the COVID thing. But just, you know, one point, I remember that uh, during Fukushima, after Fukushima, there was a lot of problem in terms of trust in the government. And there was some correlation between that change in trust in that issue and how people were viewing genetically engineered uh, foods. And I guess I just think it's kind of interesting to make those connections because none of them happen in isolation. And there's a whole issues about trust in, in governments and in global uh, interactions. So I just want to make that comment. All right, thanks, Fred. Uh, we have a follow-on question for Alan from Royden. Thank you, Alan. So you started your talk with, you usually start your talks with the basics of epidemiology. Uh, modeling was very quickly put into the forefront of this effort. But as a modeler and as somebody who knows about epidemiology, how, if, what would be your best case scenario of people being in the media, you know, the communication that is occurring from the experts to the masses? Does that make sense? Do you understand my question? Not entirely. But I, I mean, I have a related, I have an answer to a related question. Go on. Perfect. <laughs> well, so, so one of the things that's really interesting to me is the situation in the UK, which frankly is a mess. It's not as much of a mess as it is here, but it's been a mess. And the interesting thing in the UK is that there was a very well-developed modeling community in place because um, we've had a series of um, largely uh, veterinary infections that were catastrophic in the UK, like mad cow disease, foot and mouth, and so on. So we have this large modeling community in the UK that's been very well funded and that's very um, well plugged into policy channels. So the government listens to modelers. And one of the interesting things that's come out in the UK story is that the public health traditional epidemiologists have complained that the modelers had too loud a voice or had listened to way too much. And that, you know, conventional epidemiological wisdom, you know, based along the sort of experience that you've had, boots on the ground epidemiologists weren't listened to. And so efforts like contact tracing and so on were abandoned way too quickly in the UK. Um, and that somehow the modelers were late to sound the alarm. Either the modelers were late to sound the alarm or the politicians were late to listen to the alarm. And it's, it's very murky. I think there's going to be a very interesting um, dissection of this after the fact. Um, Certainly. But like I said, you know, that what, what worries me or surprises me is that even that very back of the envelope calculation that you can do in five minutes after you hear what information came out of China, 
tells you there's going to be a really bad story if you cared about the two million people dying, mm -hmm. um, which maybe people do, maybe people don't. Um, and in the UK, the story I heard or the excuse I heard was it was only until the intensive care unit usage data came out of Italy that um, they realized that, hey, this is a lot more serious or there's another component, of, there's another aspect in which this is more serious than we initially thought. Thank you. That's uh, my perspective as well. Um, thank you, Alan. All right. Do we have any uh, other questions? I had one for Eli. If there's no nobody else, sure. Go ahead. Um, so, Eli, you're, so the the maker space, the groups, that is a very democratized, uh, necessarily unorganized. So you sp spoke to organization, and so my experience with emergency response tends to be the more organized the more effective it's going to be. So you spoke to it a little bit, but let me turn it around to you. So looking into the future around makers contributing to societal problems rapidly, uh, what is your thoughts on organization and emergencies? Can you expand on that? Yeah, um, and so one thing I, I should make clear both about sort of my presentation and, and this answer is I, in this case, I, I consider myself just a, a community member, right? I'm not bringing real technical expertise about 3D printing or protective gear here. That's not my field. So, so I am just one of the makers in this case. Um, and, and you're right. So if you're not, um, experienced with like makerspace people, um, they tend to be very independent if you, they tend to, um, not out of personal feeling, but just as a default sort of like to snipe at little, like each other's printer settings and things. Um, so get, getting them to do anything synchronized is, is already a particular challenge, right? That, that's a big part of the culture. You know, the, the reason some people are in makerspaces and not trying to join a university or a company has, has to do with that. Um, and, and yet in this case, the very distribution of those facilities is, is an asset. Um, I think the, the biggest help would have been if there was anything, really anything in place earlier on, um, other than, you know, a makerspace, which might have 20 to a hundred members that there, there was nowhere to go. Um, and I think that led a lot of people to get turned off early on and sort of go away or to go on their own way. Um, so part of it, I think, is next time, hopefully some of these structures that have been put in place now will be there. Um, you know, that people hopefully will return to the NIH page next time right away instead of a, a month later. Right? Most people don't go to the NIH for 3D prints. Their website was very small before. Um, so, so I think hopefully we'll, we'll just be better off almost by default because we've had this terrible experience this time. Um, but I think even in, in wartime, my experience was people did at first put aside some of those independent tendencies, um, when they first wanted to know if they could help. They, they Googled, you know, how do I blank? Who, who's coordinating this? Um, so if there had been something there, even pretty ad hoc, I think people would have signed up, even if they hadn't built that that trust. So even if we don't preserve things from this time, um, 
having our bureaucrats and decision makers and administrators be visible quickly, even if it's not perfect, rather than sort of go underground for a few weeks while they sort it out, would be a big help. Um, yeah. All right, we've got a question from Patty. Uh, go ahead, Patty. Hey, I just wanted to um, say to folks, one, we have put up a page on our website that I just put in the chat box where we are compiling uh, all the COVID-19 resources that are um, that we've got within the GES Center. If you are part of the center and have uh, work that you're doing on this issue, shoot me an email. I'll put that up there too, uh, and I can add it to the page. Um, and then the other thing that I was going to mention is since this is our last colloquium, make sure that you are signed up for our newsletter. Um, the link is on our website also, so that you can continue to get updates from us, even though we're not getting together every week. And those are the only things I wanted to mention. And also, great talks, guys. Really wonderful. Um, and I, I posted this a couple of times, but if people weren't looking at the chat before, there's a link. Uh, if you needed anything, if you want one of these, or if you need toilet paper or a mask or yeast or seeds for your victory garden. Those are various other mutual aid efforts going on. You can fill out that form and I'll route your, your request um, for you. All right, I don't see um, any other hands up. So um, I wanna thank um, all of our speakers this week. And I also wanna thank everyone who's been joining us each week, um, particularly the last few weeks that we've been, uh, we've all shifted towards this online communications. Um, we appreciate your patience with us. Um, we hope it's still been um, beneficial and worthwhile. Um, and we'd just like to wish you all um, sort of a hopefully happy and productive spring and summer. Um, and we look forward to seeing all of you again um, in the fall when the colloquiums start up again potentially virtually, but let's all hope for a hopeful we'll always meeting in person uh, once again. Uh, so I want to jump in really quick, Todd. Todd, can I jump in really quick? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just wanted to thank you because you were almost single-handedly responsible for getting this thing adapted for an online format, and uh, it was really one of the better experiences I've been having with Zoom, actually. So um, you've done a great job adapting us, keeping us together. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. So um, with that, um, we will uh, sign off for now. Just a reminder that all of these colloquiums, um, including the previous ones, are all available on our website that you can rewatch. You can also um, download um, our weekly podcast and listen to them um, over and over and over again. But encourage you and your friends to sign up for the podcast um, if they're interested in these topics. Um, so with that, um, we will sign off for now, and we'll see you all in the fall.